0: Our God in his deepest reality is not a solitude, but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. With those words from Pope St. John Paul II during his first homily at Puebla, Mexico, Leonardo Boff begins his essay on the Trinity in the book Mysterium Liberationis. The universe is not ruled by a single person, but by three persons, And the way that God rules is not by despotic will, but by love. A love so strong that it flowed over into creation, shaping a universe whose most basic physical forces are relationships, not solitary atoms. Yet the conception we so often have of God as Christians is that God is fundamentally one, not three in one and one in three. As my sister asked me over the Christmas break, You don't really believe that God is an old, bearded white man in the sky, do you? Because that's what they taught me in church. Indeed, God is not an old, bearded white man in the sky, despite the constant propaganda that many have received, but a dynamic community of three persons who in their divinity transcend the limitations of our socialized constructions of race, gender, and class, and yet, because they have one heart that beats with love, ally themselves with the poorest among us, as did Jesus. So who is this Trinity, the ultimate mystery of God for Christians? And what implications does the Trinitarian life of God have for the organization of our society? This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology, and I'm your host, David Inchowskis. we're back with the Liberation Theology podcast in this new year, 2022, January 29th marks the first anniversary of this project. That's the date when our first episode came out on the history of liberation theology in Latin America. We're now on episode 18. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening. And please, if you haven't already, please, please, please do leave a nice rating and comment on your preferred podcast app. And that way, the algorithms will work their magic better and the show can reach more folks. But today, I want to accomplish two things. First, we'll dig into Leonardo Boss' chapter on the Trinity, and we'll cover the first half of that chapter in this episode, and second, I want to share a bit of my journey to Central America in December. In particular, Padre Melo from Radio Progreso and I had a thrilling discussion on the victory of Siomara Castro in Honduras' recent elections, so I'll offer some of the highlights from that interview, which was published in abbreviated form in the Jesuit Post. That's our plan for the show, so let's get to it. <music> God, whose essence is communion, has been in communion from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. God, Word, breath, Father, Son, Spirit, different yet one, an essence of withness, yet dynamic in motion, moving over the waters. Boff writes that the concrete dynamic of communion, the heart of God, is the model for all creation. Nothing exists in itself and for itself. Everything exists in a web of moving relations. The mark of the divine dynamic is found in the mystery of matter. As Ignacio Eacoria, liberationist thinker and expositor of the philosophy of Javier Zubiri, notes in his book Philosophy of Historical Reality, "...matter, in its structural character, is multiple unity, and in its positional character, a unitary multiplicity." The interrelated structure of nature's being reflects that of nature's maker. Korea through Zubiri, thought that we have to analyze the universe in terms of its relations as a whole. We cannot isolate one part of the universe and analyze it apart from the rest. There is a unity, a dynamic unity. Yes, there's a larger system. Yes, there are subsystems, but these things exist in relation to each other. That's like God. God also one but also multiple. Yet we know that human society does not always mirror the communal relations of God. In, in fact, let alone living in a harmonious, equitable human community inspired by God's Trinitarian life, we Christians rarely acknowledge or contemplate the radicality of the community of the Trinity. Boff notes, quote, There is almost a universal forgetfulness with respect to the Trinitarian truth and relational communion, end quote. And this forgetfulness causes great damage to church and society. At the societal level, we are, quote, heir to an age-old political authoritarianism, a concrete historical concentration of power, end quote. So in the family, there's the patriarchy, the dictatorship of the father. In politics, there's monarchy, the great man theory, and executive privilege. We can look to the Old Testament and we see that in the first book of Samuel, the people are clamoring because they want to have a king. We want to be like other nations, the Israelites say. We want to have a king to lead us, and God pretty much says, no, that's not a good idea for you, that concentration of power. That king is going to take your sons and send them off to war. That king is going to take part of your property for himself. That king is going to treat your daughters as his own wives and mistresses. And yet the Israelites opt for that in their stubbornness, and God allows them and their freedom to opt for that monarchy, but it is not the intention of God from the beginning to have that monarchy. And then we have the great man theory. This is something that affects us also in the liberationist movement. Sometimes we look at leaders of revolutionary movements, even the liberation theologians themselves, as unitary figures shaping history when really they exist in relationship with a community. Going back to Che Guevara, who was speaking about Fidel Castro, and revolutionary leadership in relation to the people, that it should be and has been like a vibration, like a wave, where what happens in the leadership moves to the people, what happens in the people moves to the leadership. So, And then we have, of course, executive privilege. We think of in the United States, the idiocy of a government for the people, by the people, and yet at the same time The executive authorities are exempt, really, from obeying the law and from cases being brought against them, and they enjoy this privilege instead of the privilege and preferential option being for the people themselves and that obediential power that leaders should have, not an exemption type of power. In economics, there's the slave owner, the feudal lord, the CEO— a concentration of power in each of the modes of production throughout history. And then in the military, of course, there is the general. And we see in great opposition to the general in the Russian Revolution, the power flowing from workers' and soldiers' councils, Soviets, that military leadership as well should not reflect this crude monotheism, we could call it, but that it should reflect a Trinitarian communal nature. And behind this despotic way of proceeding, we know there's a corresponding theology. One God, one King, one Law. As Genghis Khan said, quote, In heaven is one God alone, and on earth but one Lord, Genghis Khan, the Son of God, end quote. And wouldn't many Christian political leaders say the same thing? Absolutely. <laughs> Didn't Rick Perry say that Donald Trump was God's chosen one to lead the United States just as God chose the kings to lead Israel in the Old Testament? That's from an interview. <laughs> Didn't Joe Biden as well dress U.S. imperialism and militaristic God language, when he said, quote, Those who have served through the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah, when the Lord says, whom shall I send, who shall go for us? The American military has been answering for a long time, Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. End quote. And so, no. Trump is not God's chosen one, we know that. And no, Biden, the commander-in-chief, is not acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, when he sends the U.S. military off to hundreds of bases throughout the world, by which the U.S. maintains a perpetual imperial invasion of the planet. So here we are, two millennia, following Jesus Christ, and this insertion into human history of new relationships of power, a new vision of the universe with threeness and oneness of God, And yet, two millennia later, we have almost Augustus Caesar 2.0 basically saying, I am God, and I'm commanding people to go out on missions, and when they say yes, it's as if they're obeying God. That is horrible. And as in politics, so too, in the church, echoing Genghis Khan, many in the church say, quote, just as there is one God, so also there is but one Christ, one church, and one representative of Christ for the whole world, the Pope. For the diocese, the bishop, and for the local community, the pastor. End quote. Yet this way of organizing the church does not facilitate our experience of God as a communion of equal persons. Because so many are formed in their understanding of God by their experience of the church, and the church is structured like a monarchical hierarchy, they wind up thinking that God is just as dictatorial and unilateral as what they've seen around them. When the faithful have very few experiences of participation and inclusivity within the church, when the church shows that it does not care about their person, their voice, they come to think God does not care much for them either. Or they might leave the church in search of a community that will provide them with an experience of the togetherness for which God made them. Hence, the huge importance of this current synodal process going on in the church Even the synod on synodality, is there a new way that the church hierarchy can operate by, in fact, overturning that hierarchy as the documents of Medellin and Puebla have called for in Latin America a new way of organizing the church around the preferential option for the poor. And due to this experience and many other factors, many Christians exhibit what we can call a, quote, vulgar monotheism, end quote. There is no true appreciation for or understanding of the three persons of the Trinity. There is just the notion that there is one God, and that perhaps the three persons are simply three ways that this one God is manifested to humans. But there's also another tendency that emerges from our polarized, compartmentalized, ecclesial environment. Tritheism, says Boff, where we come to think of Father, Son, and Spirit as totally separate beings— and following that separation, we then gravitate in our devotion towards the most attractive one to us. So one begins to predominate over the others. And naturally, as human beings, we're going to have preferences and we have personalities. And so that's going to express itself in the way that our devotions and spirituality develop. But at the same time, it is true Many times, persons of the Trinity are pitted one against the other, and people choose one over the other as their personal devotion to the exclusion of the others. So, then Boff goes on to describe what each of these three religions is. There's the religion of the Father God, which he claims holds sway over many rural sectors in Latin America. It's the religion of God the Provider, God the Patriarch. On one hand, this God is providential, bestowing the gifts of nature and nature's abundance on God's family. On the other, this God is dictatorial and jealous of his power. The Son and the Spirit merely conform to the will of the Father, as should we. And going back to our first episodes in the podcast, we can be reminded of how liberation theologians have challenged the idea that we should simply accept our state of affairs, accept the dynamic of power, accept whatever the present moment is as the providence of God, Liberation theologians have challenged that to say that, in fact, Christians should be going against and revolutionizing structures, not merely interpreting them as what is right, but transforming them towards what liberation theologians would call utopia. Then there's the religion of the sun god, in which horizontal relations are dominant. And I would have to say this would be be my tendency for sure. And this religion, too, has its positives and negatives. We can see Jesus as a political organizer, as a servant of the masses. Earthly goals are at the forefront. And this is great. I think that as liberation theologian as uh, Christians, we should have what liberation theologians have called a healthy materialism. That is the perspective of the gospel. We see that when Jesus and his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath, they they prioritize their basic human needs of hunger before abstract uh, religious ideological principles. Yet, Boff asserts this religion has the potential to give birth to charismatic figures who move the masses not towards liberation, but towards themselves. And Christocentrism, too, is an emphasis on one of three equal persons. But the community, not a single person, should be the focus of our Trinitarian theology. And this is an important point, and it even gets at the name of the religion, Christianity. And of course, again, I think there's a healthy sense of this, and there's an unhealthy sense of this. Christ is the revealer of the truths of God and of humanity, that is for sure. And so Christ takes a special importance in our religion. But at the end of the day, It is true that the Trinity revealed by Jesus is a communion of three persons in one God. And so when we focus too much on Jesus Christ to the exclusion of God the Father and God the Spirit, are we limiting ourselves? Are we seeing the possibilities that the Spirit is creating in our present historical moment? Are we also seeing the way in which god is transcendent of any particular political movement lastly there's the religion of the spirit of god and this understanding shows up in pentecostal and charismatic circles the enthusiasm the trust in god's grace and the cultivation of an intimate knowledge of god all of these things are commendable but something essential is often missing the historical dimension Exaggerated concentration on the individual, the individual's spiritual and economic well-being leads to the lack of a social analysis that would truly liberate people from the root structural issues they are facing. And we can go to that recent Wall Street Journal article which talks about the rise of secularism and Pentecostalism in Latin America relative to Catholicism. And rightly and wrongly, it blames liberation theology for this. And how rightly and how wrongly? Well, rightly in the sense that it is true that the suppression of the liberation theology movement. Again, this is a movement that was wildly successful in many ways, transformed the church, mobilized people in the church in revolutionary ways, got people involved in the church and the leadership of the church. It was suppressed, (laughs) suppressed by U.S. foreign policy, suppressed also within the ecclesial structures of the church, and in the wake of that suppression. It is true that secularization and Pentecostalism have flourished in Latin America, but it's false in the sense that, again, liberation theology is, is a better alternative than the Pentecostalism that has an exclusive focus on the individual and the individual's spiritual growth and relationship with God. Again, those important things, but when it excludes the social, political, historical dimension, then there is a problem. And also, Certainly, as I have said, I think secularism, again, there's a healthy sense and an unhealthy sense of secularism. There is that unhealthy sense of secularism, which is the militant dogmatic atheism, which excludes any point of view or person associated with religion. But there's also the good sense in that uh, healthy materialism that I was referring to with the religion of the sun god. So, father, son, spirit, this disjointed tritheism, also the crude monotheism. Boff wants to transcend these tendencies and suggests that the best theology is is precisely the one that the church has taught, the trinity. And here's where many liberation theologians show what the Church of Vatican II and Nouvelle Theologie has called racehorse mot, the return to the sources, that though... Many elements of the church have been co-opted throughout history in order to support dictatorial structures. At the same time, there are important elements of the church's tradition, the biblical tradition, the church fathers, that need to be recovered and that this recovery will be part of the church's liberation and dissociation from these unjust powers. And Boff writes, quote, "...God is a coexistence of the upward, the father." lateral, the sun, and depth, the Holy Spirit, these three dimensions, all of which ought to be integrally present in the living experience of the believer. Communion is the first and last word of the mystery of God and the mystery of the world. And I quite like this threeness and oneness that Boff is drawing our attention to, the upward, the lateral, and the depth, this broad, comprehensive vision of God transcending with us and going deep within us, and all of these things existing in a dynamic, creative relationship with each other. And I believe that St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, understood well what Boff is talking about here, this simultaneous unity and distinction in the Trinity that he calls coexistence and communion. Ignatius had a particular devotion to the Trinity, and he would often pray first to each person and second to the Trinity as one God. In his journal, one of his prayers reads, Eternal Father, confirm me. Eternal Son, confirm me. Holy Spirit, confirm me. Holy Trinity, confirm me. My one and only God, confirm me. Quote. I think Ignatius' way of praying is beautiful because it respects both the unity and the diversity of the Trinity, and often enough, the way that we pray reflects the way that we see God and the world. Intentional Trinitarian prayer can help us grow in our communal orientation towards the divine and towards others. The heart of the New Testament is the gospel, and the gospel is good news for the poor. So how is the Trinity, good news for the poor of Latin America, Boff asks. Here's where he invites us to engage in a sort of examination of our personal and social conscience. Do our personal and social lives reflect or contradict the Trinity? To what degree do we share space with others in a community of radical equality? In considering this question for myself, I note the grace of Jesuit community life. Sunday through Thursday, I gather with my Jesuit brothers in the evenings for mass, social, dinner, and the evening news. There's no agenda, no hierarchy during this time. Rather, there's a simple opportunity for the sharing of our lives in community. There's storytelling, conversations about our ministries, there's joking. Of course, there's food and drink. It's a tremendous gift, and I think it does reflect in a small way the communion of the Trinity. In this past week, I was giving a presentation on Rutilio Grande for the beatification of Rutilio Grande, and a student asked a question, a high school student. He said, since joining the Jesuits, what has been the biggest change in your life? And it didn't take long for me to respond because immediately I think of community. I entered the Jesuits as many do because of the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola and because of the ministries of the Jesuits, particularly the social justice ministries and the educational ministries of the Society of Jesus. But what I didn't immediately enter the Jesuits for was the experience of community, but from the beginning, living together with other Jesuits has transformed my life. In a time when so many are so lonely and isolated, community is truly a gift, especially in this time of pandemic. And I pray that all listeners have found, or will soon find, or can remember a community of persons in which they share life in equality, whether a family, a church community, a religious order, a community organization, a union, or a political party. Since communion is at the center of the mystery of God and of God's universe, we cut to the heart of everything when we experience the togetherness of communion. At the social level, Boff writes that, quote, we see in Latin America how far we must go to develop equal relationships in society, equal dignity as the Trinity, end quote. The same is true for us in the United States and other predominantly English-speaking countries. What comes to mind immediately is the arrogance and contempt for the poor that the current administration is demonstrating in its COVID-19 policy. When confronted with the crisis of testing in recent weeks, the president and vice president have responded flippantly that we should, quote, just Google, and quote, the nearest testing site. When I proceeded to do so a few weeks ago, when I needed to get tested, one of the two alleged sites in my area did not exist—I only found that out after I drove there—and the other had a line of about 150 people who were waiting outside of a small clinic in sub-freezing temperatures— and what do we say of those who do not have access, as I do, to the internet, to cell- cellular data, to transportation? And what to say of those who cannot afford the treatment or the time off work that might come from a positive test result? It is true that in recent days, the administration has made available for COVID-19 at-home tests per household, but it seems to me very much so too little and very much so too late. And then there's the total disregard for people with pre-existing conditions for whom a COVID-19 diagnosis may mean severe illness or death. These folks are left behind when the administration flippantly claims that the Omicron variant is mild, if indeed it is, for those who are generally healthy and here again two millennia into christianity it seems we have not absorbed some of the foundational principles of christianity jesus leaving the 99 in order to be with the one as mason menenga has said uh, so beautifully isn't that what our religion is about caring for the people at the margins caring for the weakest among us and yet it seems that those are precisely those who are being excluded from our current way of proceeding In these policies and so many more, we observe the lack of our reproduction of communal Trinitarian life. Rather, we see a subordinationism in which the poor must conform their will to that of the rich, despite the fact that the poor and the rich are living under very different material conditions. In the face of society's subordinationism, one that Latin America faces not only within each country, but also internationally in terms of its subordination to the imperial core, Boff suggests our adoption of, quote, the motto of the late 19th century Orthodox Socialist Reformers of Russia, the Holy Trinity is our social program, end quote. And I really do like that a lot. I think we should go with that motto. Boff continues with an extended, enlightening commentary on a heavy-hitting quote about the Trinity from the Church Father, St. Irenaeus, quote, The Son and the Holy Spirit are the two hands of the Father, by which he touches us, embraces us, and molds us to his image and likeness, quote. We can squeeze quite a bit of juice from this quote. We know the Father through the Son and through the Spirit. Jesus reveals the Father to us. As Jesus says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father from John 14, verse 9. And it's rather helpful to us that Jesus reveals us the Father because per John one eighteen, quote, no one has ever seen God, end quote. So if no one has ever seen God, how are we supposed to know who God is? Who is the Father? Well, that's precisely why right after that, in John one eighteen, the writer continues, quote, it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known, end quote. And this goes back to Juan Luis Segundo, who was clear in asserting that while we Christians often say Jesus is God, it's more historically accurate to say God is Jesus. Because it's not as if we have some pre-existing, in-the-air notion of God that we see Jesus and say, oh, that's God. But rather, it is through our experience of Jesus that we come to know who God is. But we know God the Father not only through Jesus, but also through the Holy Spirit, who acts, quote, in history and in people's lives, end quote. After all, Acts of the Apostles, the first book of church history following Jesus' earthly life, has the most references to the Holy Spirit of all the books of the New Testament. Consider, for example, Acts, chapter 2, verse 33, quote, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. End quote. So the Spirit is given so that we can see and hear God in the wake of Jesus' ascension. The Spirit is the perpetuation of our earthly lifeline to God. The Spirit is God's hand shaping human history through grace given to the people of God. But towards what is God the Father shaping human history through our contact with the Son and the Spirit? Boff says it's towards mercy. As Christians, we sometimes think of mercy as God pardoning our sins, and that's certainly an important part of Christian mercy. However, it's not the fullness of the picture. Mercy actually has a broader meaning in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It signifies the alleviation of suffering in general. This suffering can certainly be psycho-spiritual. We can think, for example, of the prodigal son who anguishes mentally over his decision to return to his father's house having squandered his inheritance. But the father extends mercy to his son, welcoming him, and even celebrating his return instead of punishing him. The suffering can also be physical. In fact, it's the prodigal son's poverty that forces him back into the hands of his father's mercy. And then there's the tender mercy that Jesus shows countless sick and hungry people in the Gospels. The son is the action of God's mercy, the actualization of our hope, for material and spiritual well-being through a revolution that's both personal and social. Jesus cares for individual poor people, and Jesus also denounces the rich as a social class. The Spirit is the Father and the Son's gift to humanity so that Jesus' revolutionary mission can continue in history. As the Spirit moved over the waters to create the universe in the beginning, the Spirit moves in us now so that we can create a new heaven and a new earth that truly reflects the Trinitarian community and with the Spirit comes power. And I really do believe this, that we Christians must realize the gift that we've been given in our baptism when, as the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism and equipped him for mission, the Spirit descends on us and gets us ready for our own mission. The very life of God resides in us such that nothing is impossible for us. It is not impossible to change society so that it better reflects the communion of God. We are capable of constructing a new way of relating to each other. That said, I think it's a perfect time to consider some of the insights I've taken from a recent interview from Ismael Moreno, the Jesuit priest who leads Radio Progreso, a communications and social justice research team in Honduras. In December, I spoke with him about the victory of Ciomara Castro in the recent Honduran presidential election. Her election marks the end of 12 years of nationalist rule in the country following the coup against the progressive Venezuela-allied government of Manuel Celaya, Mel Celaya. How does she envision the new society that Hondurans can construct in the wake of many years of narco-dictatorship, and what role might the church play in the process? One can find this interview at the Jesuit Post. It's titled, Jesuit Father Melo on the Presidential Victory of Xiomara Castro in Honduras. We are a happy people after a long bout of sadness. December 9th, 2021. And we begin that interview by a question. I ask Father Melo, what are the conditions under which Ciomara Castro was elected? Why was she elected? What is the national reality going on that led to her coming to power? And Melo signaled three things. He said, first, there is inequality. He said that the wealth of five men in Honduras is equal to the combined wealth of two million poor Honduran citizens. So we see a rebelling against this inequality. We also see in Honduras extractivism, this culture, this policy, this dominant economic model of neoliberalism in which countries from the global north extract the resources, whether through mining, through hydroelectric power, through labor, the wealth of the Honduran people, and export it to the north. And this also has had extreme effects at the level of migration. And people often comment on those coming from Central America, coming because of poverty. Well, part of this poverty has been created by extractivism in the sense that, of course, uh, there's promise for labor, and then that promise is not given uh, through these projects of extractivism. But not only that, extractivism is polluting our globe, and this pollution is causing global warming, and that global warming is affecting how agriculture happens in Honduras because certain crops in certain areas that had been grown can no longer be grown because of the changing climate, leaving people without work, leaving people feeling forced to move to the United States. So, that's the second thing. There's also Melo signaled corruption, impunity, ungovernability, this narco-dictatorship. President-dictator Juan Orlando Hernández, again, winning elections based on drug money from his brother's relations with various drug cartels. And so people are rebelling against these three things in the election of Castro. Then I asked Melo, is Xiomara Castro a socialist? Does she want socialist relations of production? and because if one were to read the us press for example the the new york times it calls uh, her a socialist but melo was under the impression that she is not a socialist but rather that she's simply had the goal of restoring democracy after years of election fraud, after the 2009 coup, after, again, this drug money being poured into the elections, after Juan Orlando Hernández stacking the Supreme Court and getting the Supreme Court to make a decision against the Honduran constitution so that he could run for an illegal second term and build his dictatorship, that Castro says Melo is not necessarily interested in an immediate transition to to socialist relations of production, but just wants to restore democracy, wants to build a broad coalition to bring dignity, work, health care, and education to the country. So we can say that in Melo's interpretation, Castro is not necessarily for socialism, but is for the construction of a social democracy. And then I asked, I asked Melo, what is the role of the church in this phase of Honduran history and this transition towards Castro? And I'll quote Melo here. He says, quote, "...insofar as a government attends to the cry for justice and the grievances of the poorest people, the church can be close to its project, always without getting confused, always maintaining its independence." Insofar as a government distances itself from the societal demands of the impoverished, the Church has to become a critical consciousness, a channel for denunciations, and a defender of the rights of the poorest. Right now, I think Ms. Castro is identified with a search for justice. The Church, as a continuation of the mission to historicize the reign of God, also searches for justice. We are together, but we are not married." End quote. And what a beautiful and articulate way of putting it from Melo. Cooperation, where cooperation is possible on our common project of the liberation of the oppressed, but also a critical distance that allows the church to critique when politicians and governments are distancing themselves from the demands of the poor majorities. And so that line, we're together but we're not married, seems like a particularly appropriate one. I then asked Melo about the religious identity of Xiomara Castro. And he was clear, he said Xiomara Castro is Catholic, but also a resentful Catholic, in the sense that after the coup, for a period she was forbidden, from entering into Catholic churches in the country, but that despite that experience of being isolated and alienated from the church's alignment with the pro-coup forces in Honduras, Melo says that Xiomara Castro seeks a closeness with the Catholic church and has found that there are sectors of the church that embrace her for who she is and what her goals are. We then talked about Honduras's martyrs, what's often called in Honduras martires del pueblo, the, the people's martyrs. And I was wondering about the relationship between these martyrs and the church's martyrs, the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And that's when Melo said this beautiful quote that there is, quote, intimate unity between the martyrs of the people and the martyrs of faith in Jesus Christ, end quote. And he pointed to the fact that Prophets and martyrs in the biblical tradition and in the Christian tradition, of course, denounce injustice and work to create justice through liberation and often will, of course, because of that commitment, face persecution and martyrdom and that their commitment like that of Jesus Christ to the liberation of the people is a commitment that goes even unto death. So, of course, there is an intimate unity. And, of course, in the cases of many of these martyrs, there is a strong connection with God, sometimes through the institutional church, sometimes through a combination of Catholic spirituality and indigenous spirituality, uh, sometimes through indigenous spirituality apart from a Catholic spirituality, but that the Spirit of God is at work in the martyrs of the people, and that Siomara Castro is trying to allow this history of the martyrs of Honduras, the martyrs of the coup in 2009, the martyrs post-coup 2009 like Berta Cáceres, Margarita Murillo, for these stories to come out into the light and inspire the people's struggle for freedom in this new phase of the construction of a new society. We then talked about dependency theory in this 50 years since the publication of Gustavo Gutierrez's *A Theology of Liberation, where he draws from economic theories of dependence and world systems theory in order to Discuss the theological implication for this inequality, particularly appropriate for this episode. Instead of extractivism, again, what does? How might the Trinity inspire countries to work with each other in their oneness, but also in their distinctness? And Melo says that dependency theory is still very relevant. And of course, we can think about the United States' role in the 2009 coup. We can think of the history of the fruit companies in Honduras and how that continues. We can think of the maquilas, the sweatshops in Honduras, which again are related to a global capitalist system. And Melo says that all of these things in history, these layers of dependence, are creating an accumulation of conflicts. And so what Xiomara Castro is tasked to do is to break with this cycle of accumulating conflicts in the country but not breaking the cycle by putting a patch over the conflicts but addressing their root causes and that that is precisely what gets people fired up about Mara Castro, is that they feel that it's possible that she could challenge some of the root causes. And in her, in her theses of government, she has some which are rather radical and get to the heart of those power dynamics. But Melo also said that there are things of concern in Ciomara Castro that we need to be looking out for in terms of that critical consciousness. And one would be the nepotism, in the sense that we must point out, again, that that coup in 2009 was against Manuel Celaya, the husband of Ciomara Castro, and that also ciomara Castro's daughter was elected to the Congress, even though... The Honduran constitution does limit the ability of people's family members to be involved in other branches of government. So these are things to watch out for. You know, is there a nepotism? Is there a consolidation of power here? How can the Honduran people ensure that, again, this inspirational figure, Mel Zelaya, and also Ciomara Castro, that they, they had unfinished work to do in 2009, but at the same time, we need to realize and make sure that it's the Honduran people that, at the end of the day, are dictating what is to happen in the country and not a small, privileged class And we finished with just a sense of the atmosphere in Honduras. I had noted this when I went in early December, that there's just a certain happiness, a joy amongst the people. In a country that has been dominated by violence and dictatorship, darkness, there is a moment of light. That is breaking through, and that light is allowing people to feel light on their feet. Melo confirmed this and said that he's noting this as well, and that there is hope breaking in but we have to keep in mind that this hope is faces serious challenges and that's why Melo said we need to have a happiness but we need to have happiness with our feet on the ground feet planted firmly on the ground so yes we need to look up into the heavens we need to imagine how we can construct a democratic future for the country but we need to be rooted in reality and this is accurate <laughs> in the the sense that just in recent days here, the days following my return to the United States, what we're seeing is that the Congress is consolidating power, but not as was predicted during the promises that were made during the election as to which alliances would be formed in Congress such that Xiomara Castro would be able to carry out her agenda. But we've found that that is not the case and that there are many traitors to uh, Xiomara Castro's party and the alliances that were meant to be made. And now uh, we have a Congress under Jorge Calix, which may severely obstruct Xiomara Castro's ability to do the things that she has promised that she would do and we're seeing defectors, many defectors, uh, moving away from Xiomara Castro, so that the current way of proceeding in Honduras can be preserved. So that horizon of hope also comes with the fact that there there could be light coming, but also that darkness could could reemerge and overcome the light, at least in the immediate future. So I do thank Melo for that interview for his updating on the Honduran reality in the wake of uh, Xiomara Castro's election thank Father Melo in general for his amazing work with the Honduran people. I think that in a country where many of the means of communication are dominated by these very wealthy families that we discussed earlier, uh, it's important to have an independent voice and that Radio Progresso has been and will continue to be a voice put at the service of the people. And the reporting that happens at Radio Progresso is reporting that one would not find in other sectors because they place a priority in their reporting on that preferential option for the poor. So thanks to Melo and thanks to Radio Progresso for this update on the Honduran reality. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Liberation Theology podcast. We'll continue next time with the second half of Leonardo Boff's commentary on the Trinity. It's great stuff, but for now, let us finish with a Trinitarian prayer, a favorite one in the society of Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen you. Mm-hmm.